All right, we are back. We sometimes do obituaries in our third segment because we think certain people's passing should be noted. So we're going to note the passing of four Republican politicians. One current obituary and three from the recent past. The first is the late William J. Janklow, former governor and congressman from South Dakota, described by the Week magazine as the South Dakota governor who hurried too much. Described as an opinionated man who rubbed opponents and sometimes political allies the wrong way, the people of South Dakota, it's noted, seemed to never grow tired of electing him to office. But that came to a, an end in 2003 when he blew through a stop sign on a rural road and killed a 55-year-old Minnesota farmer riding a motorcycle. By then, the governor's habit of speeding had been well documented. He received a dozen tickets between 1919 and 1994 alone. The accident led to a sentence of 100 days in prison for second-degree manslaughter. Only 100 days? Oh, well. He was a politician. Janklout was forced to resign his seat in Congress as a result. Late in life, he said, if I had it to do all over, I'd do everything I did. But I'd, I'd stop at a stop sign. Janklau was a conservative, but we want to note the passing of three liberal Republicans. Last year saw the death of both Charles Percy and Mark Hatfield. Percy had appeared twice in the cover of Time magazine by 1964 before he even ran for the Senate. He was handsome and a successful businessman with a rags-to-riches story and was being touted as an heir apparent to the liberal wing of the Republican Party. Dwight D. Eisenhower was convinced one day he'd be president. After World War II, Percy was with Bell and & Howell and was named CEO at age 29, the youngest person ever to run a major U.S. company at the time. In 1966, he won a U.S. Senate seat that he would hold for 18 years. Hearing reputation as a moderate, he supported legislation to build more low-income housing and became an outspoken critic of the Vietnam War. It was Percy who proposed an independent prosecutor to investigate the Watergate scandal. He thought about a run for the presidency in the 70s, but backed off when Gerald Ford indicated that he would run in 1976. Percy was narrowly defeated for a fourth Senate term by Paul Simon in 1984. Percy called himself a fervent moderate and always sought a balanced perspective in his public life, something which I think is very much absent from the present-day Republican Party. The same could be said for Mark Hatfield, former Oregon governor and senator. Throughout his career, he was one of the most liberal Republicans in the Senate. As chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee during the 80s and 90s, he steadfastly resisted federal defense spending requests and in 1995 became embroiled in a feud with the conservative wing of the party over a proposed balanced budget amendment. Hatfield's nay turned out to be the deciding vote against the measure, which infuriated Republican leaders like Newt Gingrich and Bob Dole. The Portland Oregonian said about him, Hatfield's opposition to the Vietnam War is what made him into a true national figure. As governor, he denounced the 1965 bombing campaigns and won a seat in the U.S. Senate the following year on an anti-war platform. He remained a vocal opponent of the war, branding it a sin that scarred the national soul. And completing our trio of uh, deceased great Republican liberals, we have an item from the archives, February of 2010, noting the passing of Charles Mathias of Maryland. He had spent 20 years on Capitol Hill as a Republican, but he received a grade of zero from the American Conservative Union for his many liberal stances. Matthias's maverick record inspired Democratic Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield to call him the conscience of the Senate in 1973. 
His obituary noted that once Matthias was in the House, he gained a reputation for bucking the Republican Party. He cemented that image when he joined the Senate in 1968. During his three terms in the Senate, Matthias was a strong supporter of civil rights legislation and supported a federal ban on inexpensive handguns known as Saturday Night Specials. He also opposed the war in Vietnam and championed environmental causes, especially cleaning up Maryland's Chesapeake Bay. His stance earned him a place on Richard Nixon's enemies list, and he was later denied the chairmanship of the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Reagan administration. When he thought briefly about running for president back in 1974, Charles Mathias quoted Edmund Burke's famous dictum, Your representative owes you his judgment, and he betrays instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. I tell you, these are three guys that we could use right now. It is disgusting that, uh, that party politics rules this country and is not ruling it very well. Uh, you know, wh- why is it that w- the Democrats and, and everyone has to accept the fact that Barack Obama will be the Democratic nominee in November? He has not done a good job. His administration is talking about getting out of Afghanistan at the end of next year, 2013, which will be 11 months into the term of whoever is the next president. Of course, considering what the Republicans are offering, I have to admit, I do hope it's Barack Obama. Of course, as in so many aspects of life, this is a relative judgment, which in an odd way reminds me of a quote from Jerry Jeff Walker, the country singer, noted for his personal offensiveness. After apparently offending some cowboys, they smacked him around. Walker's comment to them was, You guys ain't so tough. I've been beat up way worse than this by motorcycle gangs. Which I think is about how we sort of feel collectively as a nation right about now, isn't it? Compared to the motorcycle gang of the Bush-Cheney administration, I guess we have been beat up worse. Finally, I was dismayed to see the uh, laudatory pieces about Joe Paterno, who passed away this week. It's curious that he was apparently on death's door and just passed away, but was only removed from his position of head coach because of the sex scandal. Paterno told the press shortly before he passed away that he was unsure of what to do after sex allegations, which, as is often the case, allowed The Onion to come forward with the most sensible response to that. To quote from America's satirical newspaper, Dateline November 28th, In the wake of the sex abuse scandal that rocked Penn State earlier this month, a coalition of 10-year-old boys from across the nation held a press conference outside Beaver Stadium, home of the college football's Nittany Lions, to remind Americans that if they see someone raping a prepubescent boy, they should contact the police immediately. Quote, Considering that the monstrous acts perpetrated by Jerry Sandusky went unreported for years, even after a fellow coach saw him raping a 10-year-old boy inside the facility behind me, We feel perhaps not everybody's totally clear on what to do if one witnesses such a thing, said spokesman Joshua Pearson, flanked by several of his fifth-grade colleagues. Many of you will no doubt be relieved to know the proper course of action is really quite simple. Just contact the police. Call 911. Go to your local precinct. Stop an officer on the street. The bottom line is, if you see one of us getting raped, notify the police and do so as quickly as possible. The article notes that the nation's 10-year-old boys unanimously echoed Pearson's sentiments, imploring people to contact police not only when they see prepubescent boys being raped, but in fact when they see anyone at all being raped in any context. 
said South Dakota resident Nick Keeley, age 10. Certainly, if you were to see me being raped, I would want you to call the police. I'm a 10-year-old boy who couldn't possibly give my consent or even fully grasp the horror of what is happening to me. What's really at issue here is the act of rape itself. Yes, if you see a 10-year-old boy like me being raped, by all means call the police. But don't just walk on if you see, say, a teenage girl being raped in a locker room or even a full-grown man being raped in an alleyway. These are also situations in which you should definitely call the police and right away. Seeing any person getting raped at any time, even just once, is more than enough reason to contact the police, Keeley added. I can't stress that enough. Kind of pathetic that it took the onion to frame that one correctly, wouldn't you say? All right, let's close with a few items from the archive files. Piece from July 2010. According to the New York Times, oil production is among the most heavily subsidized businesses, with tax breaks available at virtually every stage of the exploration and extraction process. BP, for example, was getting a tax deduction of $225,000 a day for renting the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig. Also from July 2010, item from the, also from the New York Times, The biggest defaulters on mortgages are wealthy people who took out huge loans to buy mansions they assumed they could sell at a profit. More than one in seven homeowners with loans in excess of $1 million are seriously delinquent, compared with one in 12 mortgages below the million-dollar mark. All right, two final items. One, a quote from Jacob Weisberg in Slate.com, which um, was put out. In late October of 2008, as the financial crisis came to a head, said Mr. Weinberg, a source of mild entertainment amid the financial carnage has been watching libertarians scurrying to explain how the global financial crisis is the result of too much government intervention rather than too little. Like all true ideologues, libertarians find a way to interpret mounting evidence of error as proof that they were right all along. They are intellectually immature, frozen in the worldview many of them absorbed from reading Ayn Rand novels in high school. Their heroic view of capitalism makes it difficult for them to accept that markets can be irrational, misunderstand risk, and misallocate resources, or that financial systems without vigorous government oversight and the capacity for pragmatic intervention constitute a recipe for disaster. They're bankrupt, and this time, there'll be no bailout. We're still kind of partial to Ron Paul, though. In fact, Mr. Mellon, I'm going to make it official. I'm hereby throwing the support of Radio Parallax to Ron Paul among the nut jobs running for the Republican nomination. Now, mind you, that's just for the Republican nomination, okay? When we read you next week what Ron Paul had to say to the House of Representatives on September 10th of 2002, you'll be quite clear that he's never going to get the nomination. Anyway, final item comes from our list of great hoaxes of history, which we aired early on in the run of this program. One of our personal favorites was number 39, the Euro Anthem. Apparently in 1999, the Today program on BBC Radio 4 announced that the British national anthem, God Save the Queen, was to be replaced by a Euro Anthem sung in German. 
The new anthem, which today played for their listeners, used extracts from Beethoven's music and was sung by pupils of a German school in London. Reportedly, Prince Charles's office telephoned Radio 4 to ask them for a copy of the new anthem. It was noted that St. James Place later insisted they'd been playing along with the prank and had never actually been taken in by it. And on that note, that's our show. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Our thanks to Jeff Nilsson about his fascinating article on John Elfrip Watkins Jr. and his predictions. We'll see you next week at the same time.